Um, I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 45. We are nearing, of course, the end of Genesis. And we are going to be seeing in this chapter how it was that the Hebrew people ended up in Egypt. This is a fact that was attested by archaeology. We actually have pictures uh, in on Egyptian walls from the period that have uh, a people called the Hebrew who became, or Hebrew, if uh, you pronounce it their way, uh, who became a slave people to the Egyptians. And we find out here how it was that the, uh, the people of God ended up becoming those slaves in Egypt. And also, we know that they were not only being brought there to, uh, to become slaves, but they were brought there primarily to be built into a mighty nation and then delivered from their slavery by the same God who had brought them in. But before we turn our attention to the word of God, let us uh, turn our attention to the God who has given us that word. And let's ask for his help. Please join me. Sovereign Lord, we thank you that you are in charge of all things. It was your will, Lord, and we seldom stop to consider it. It was your will that we be here on this night in this place, gathered with these people to hear these words. And I pray, therefore, Lord, that you would help us to understand them and apply them to our lives. We know that you are the God who is in charge of all things, and so it was your will that we would be met with this message at this moment in time. Whether we are listening in person or listening later online or listening live, Lord, Nonetheless, it was your intention that we hear these things. And so therefore, I pray, Lord, that we would learn from them. Don't let these things simply be words that go in one ear and out the other. If we were receiving a communication from our commander-in-chief or a communication from one who loved us and we knew that, we would give them our attention. At least I hope we would. And we are receiving a communication from both at the same time. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to take these things to heart to hear them, and then to apply them in our lives. Help me, O Lord, as has been prayed, to stand uh, fast at the moment and to be able to communicate well. I ask for the energy and the strength to do so. And I pray, O Lord, that you would give me uh, your people's attention. I don't deserve it, but you do, Lord. And I pray that uh, they would hear you with pleasure and take your word to heart. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 45, I'll be reading the entire chapter. I remind you, this is the word of God. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land. And there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives By a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. 
You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them, and after that, his brothers talked with him. Mm. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this, load your animals and depart, go to the land of Canaan, bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. Also, do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garment. But to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. Then he sent to his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, See that you do not become troubled along the way. Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There are many trials, let's put it frankly, uh, in pastoring. There are things that, uh, that break your heart to see, uh, times when um, you, you just grieve with the grieving, times when I have uh, wept with families that have lost children, uh, times that I have uh, seen marriages fall apart and there doesn't seem to be any hope. Things I've gone through, but for all of those times, there are still other times that have been times of reminder to me that God is in charge, that he is ordaining what comes to pass, and that all things will work for good. One of the most wonderful things to uh, see that work, work in is in reconciliation. When you have, for instance, a family in which there has been a schism, there's been sin, for, for instance, that has divided a couple, and then you see the Lord working in their lives, melting their hearts, humbling them, and then bringing them back together. That is truly a wonderful thing to see. It is an evidence of God's working in the world, and it is a reminder of the great reconciliation he worked, of course, through his own son, Jesus Christ, between us and him. Our God is a reconciling God. Our God is a reuniting God. And here we see a beautiful picture of reunion, a family that was split by sin being brought back together again and better than ever by God and all part of his plan. The things that men had meant for evil, we see here 
being used by God for good, and not just for that one family, but good for all the families of the earth, if we can believe it. So to watch this happen should not only amaze, but delight us and be seen as one more evidence of God's love to his people and indirectly or actually directly to us. For the fruits of this particular reconciliation of a family come down to us today. For we know that our Savior, Jesus Christ, came from this very family. And so it should be something that, uh, that directly concerns us. Now, here we see these brothers who have been through the crucible. They have been tried and tested. They've been put through a very hard time. And they have finally passed this repentance test. Joseph can no longer control his emotions. He hears this moving speech by Judah that is so full of pathos, especially when he is speaking of his father and what he has been through and indeed what he is still going through and what would happen to him if they were to return without Benjamin, his brother, and his heart breaks. But at the same time, he knows that they are changed, that the Lord has done his work. And so he finally decides it's time to reveal his true identity. And when he does so, the brothers are, first of all, dumbfounded. And that's understandable. It doesn't seem possible at all. At this point, they have to be wondering if this is some new trick. Is this Egyptian who has been messing with us, messing with us even more? Has he learned about Joseph somehow? And now he's pretending to be him? After all, Joseph had been sold into slavery years and years ago. Most of them probably believed, I mean, they knew what happened to slaves. Most of them probably believed he had died under bondage. Or at the very least, he was in a very, very subservient position. To find that Joseph is actually the prime minister of Egypt, well, that would be, you know, if you were to ask the, the brothers, where do you think Joseph is now? That would never have been one of the answers that came up on the cards that you received. They probably thought he was doing very, very poorly. It was probably something that, that was still pressing down on their consciences, which obviously at this point are reawakened. But in fact, Joseph is doing very, very well. And he's standing in front of them. And of course, we have to admit there would also be a few fears. Okay, if this is Joseph, ah, oh, we sold him into slavery. And I think he remembers. He probably does. Um, if it was a man who didn't know them, this prime minister, they could expect to be treated in, in a neutral fashion, but they knew what they had done to Joseph and how they had grievously hurt their father and how that would have angered Joseph as well. Uh, they had maintained a lie for decades. And this could, I mean, uh, technically, if the Bible had been written by Mel Gibson, this would have gone very, very differently. It would have formed the, the basis of a plot of a revenge movie at this point in time. A young man sold into slavery by his own brothers, sexually harassed by his employer, framed, and then thrown in a stinking dungeon for years. But now it's his turn! The revenge of Joseph! I'll be back. It's payback time. Um, and they might be thinking that that's what's going to be next on the agenda for them, but that's clearly not. Because thank, thanks be to God, this is not a Mel Gibson movie. This is what actually happens when God works in men's hearts. And we see that wonderfully. And the brothers aren't the only ones, obviously, that, that God has been working in. One of the things we see here is that Joseph himself 
has been profoundly moved and affected by God. The way that he works, his entire worldview, the way that he thinks has been changed by his understanding of what God has been doing. He now has a theology that has an emphasis on the sovereignty of God. And not only that, he sees now the way that that works out in everyday life. It's a wonderful thing, let me tell you this, to have a solid an absolutely orthodox theology, one that emphasizes sovereign grace and God's uh, majestic rulership of all the universe. But I have to tell you, while I know a lot of people who believe that, far fewer people actually apply that in their own lives. God is sovereign, and yet they don't see how that works out in the bad things that happen in their life. Yeah, God is sovereign, but this was a mistake. What? Do you, do you know what you're saying? Well, that's not what's going on in Joseph. He has become truly wise. He is a man who fears God. And of course, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And now he's applying what he knows about God to the position that he's in. He is watching his own life through the best lens possible, that of God's sovereignty. So he tells his brothers, who are at this point, no doubt, quaking in their sandals, not to be fearful or even to be angry with themselves. Because if they do have an, an awakened conscience, and clearly they do, well, self-reproach is going to be the thing that, that happens next. And I have to warn you about self-reproach. Self-reproach can become sinful, believe it or not. Now, we don't want people who sin and then walk away <laughs> saying, oh, well, <laughs> you know, not feeling the sting of it at all. Absolutely, we should own our sins, repent of them. We should feel the guilt and then feel the forgiveness that God gives us under that. But self-reproach can be taken to a point where we never let up on ourselves. And as a result, what is happening is we're actually den denying and defying God. What do I mean by that? The Lord says, your sins are forgiven. And we say, no, they're not. You have no idea how bad I am, God. I'm not worthy of your forgiveness. What are we doing at that point in time? We are actually asserting our sovereignty over God's sovereignty. If the Lord wishes to forgive us for our sins, and he has sent his son to the cross in order to make that possible, who are we to say, my sins are too great for you to forgive? Are we denying the efficacy of Christ's atonement? Well, what Joseph doesn't want to happen is for his, his brothers to be crushed by this, to be full of self-recrimination, to be sniping at each other. Why didn't you? Why didn't you? And you should have stopped and et cetera and going on forever. He says, let that not happen. Do not fear. Do not be angry. Because he sees how all of these things had to have happened in order for good to come about. Now, we must say at this point that doesn't make what the, the brothers did to Joseph not sinful or not their responsibility. Although this was God's providential ordering at work, at the same time, it was their sin. They did the wrong. But all of these things had to happen in order for the great deliverance that God was planning to take place. Indeed, their, their own survival and God's great redemptive plans that, that don't just end with the book of Genesis, but then go on all the way through the Bible, those depended absolutely on these events taking place. And the wonderful thing, I hope you see this, is Joseph is no longer looking at life from, from a singular subjective perspective. 
He now looks at life through God's greater plan. And if I can, I would encourage you to do that. It is so freeing not to be trapped looking through the tunnel of your own experiences all the time, the circumstances that are happening to you, but rather to be thinking in the wider, what is God doing? What has God promised? How are these things coming to pass? Thinking along those lines, it is so freeing and it will stop you from from several terrible things, one of which is self-pity. Joseph could have, his life could have been destroyed by self-pity, but instead he remembered the sovereignty of God. And so what does he say to the brothers? It's worth recounting. In verse 5, he says, But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Men, it was God who brought me here, is what he's saying in the midst of this. The very ones also who sinned against him, note this, are the men who are being redeemed by the the fruits of their sin, you know, through the the fruits of their sin. It's, it's, It's funny, but we have... Their sin being turned to good. Now, does this make sin good? No, No, it doesn't. It's still wrong. And we'll talk about that uh, in a little while when we get to, uh, to the close of the sermon. But we need to remember that this is all part of a much greater plan of redemption tied to the promises that were made to their forefather, Abraham. Now, if we have no faith in God, we have no belief that he's in charge of things, Uh, And I know that it's inevitable that somebody out there doesn't believe any of this. They they just think, uh, well, it was just a wonderful series of of coincidences. You know, the the Hebrews ended up in Egypt and then the Hebrews were brought out of Egypt and so on. Just, uh, you know, that's nice. A series of, of tremendously propitious and lucky events. What a way to live your life, honestly. There is, therefore, no hope for you, ultimately. There's no, uh, you know, there's no ultimate hope for anyone. All these things transpire. There's no rhyme, no reason to them. They, they just happen. And then you die. And everything that you did in your life is worthless and fruitless. You are no more important to the universe. Remember this. If the universe is simply material, if that's all there is to it, you are no more worthwhile than a piece of broccoli or a meteor. You have no greater importance, and ultimately, your fate is the same. You'll turn to dust, and then that dust itself will be swept away in time, and then the universe suffers its eternal heat death. Honestly, you know, I wonder how it is that people who are truly materialists go on, because they know ultimately, if they're, if they're really self-examining, they know ultimately that their lives are pointless. Now, you see... One of the things that I admire about Sartre and some of the French existentialists is that they actually realize that, and then they, they scrabble to find a way to make a pointless existence have a point, but they never really succeeded. And most of them really uh, realize that. But you understand that all of these prophecies weren't just tremendously lucky. The fact that they came to pass, the way that God brought the people of God into Egypt, then he 
brought them out of Egypt. Then he established a nation. Then he established a king. Then from that king came a line of kings. Then they were preserved when all the other nations around them turned to dust and went on. And then eventually the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in accordance with all of the prophecies that were made hundreds of years before his birth, he was born. He came to be. He lived. He died. He was seen again. And then against all chances, a group of fishermen and tax collectors from a backwater region of the Roman Empire managed to change the entire world forever. All of that chance. Yeah, right. It's ridiculous. And yet, we'll be tempted to hold on to ridiculosity rather than to admit that God is sovereign for all the reasons that I discussed this morning. Why? Because if God is sovereign, then his will be done, not my will be done. And that's what we want. Ultimately, we want to be in charge. Whether it's something as, as small and, and ultimately as, as petty as, I, I want to move in with my girlfriend even though we're not married. Or I want to rule a nation and genocidally wipe out an entire, entire people groups. Either way, I'm going to assert there is no God. So whether you're Mao or whether you're a teenager, it doesn't matter. It's the same, I want my will to prevail. I want to fight against the sovereignty of God. Well, we see that the brothers here aren't doing this. And we see the way that God's promises to Abraham are being fulfilled. In Genesis 15, then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years, and also the nation which they serve, whom they serve, rather, I will judge. Afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. So we see that promise beginning to come to pass. And all of it, Moving towards that greatest of all blessings in Genesis twenty-two seventeen, Blessing, I will bless you, says the Lord to Abraham. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Whose seed? Abraham's seed. And who is the seed? The seed is Jesus who would be the blessing to all the nations. God's plan of redemption is moving forward through a series of years of feast and a series of years of famine and then bringing this family into Egypt. So Joseph founds everything that is happening in God's sovereign will and his plans. And he says to the brothers, go back, get your father, get my father from the land of Canaan. And Pharaoh, his boss, is actually overjoyed to hear that the family of the man who had saved Egypt, who was his, his number one guy in a non-ironic sense, uh, has been found. And he tells them not to worry. Don't worry, says Pharaoh. Everything that you've ever wanted will be given to you now. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, he says, and you will eat the fat of the land. And he will even pay the price of their PCS. He sends the Egyptian equivalent of moving vans uh, out to pick them up. And so the families will be able to travel to Egypt as soon as possible. Everything is being taken care of. Now, one of the things I want you to see is that whenever there is an act of redemption that occurs, life changes dramatically. Part of their being redeemed involved them being moved from Canaan, the place that they had known all of their lives, to Egypt, a place that they didn't know. And this was going to be very scary. They're moving into the midst of an alien culture, a culture that's much larger than they are, 
a culture that views many of their habits, the food that they eat, their, their trade, and so on, views it as an abomination. In many ways, it would be scary. It's certainly moving them out of their comfort zone. I want you to know this. It is not the case that when God redeems people, he leaves them where they are. He will unsettle your life in ways that you never, ever expected. I thought I understood hardship before I became a Christian. But then I became a Christian. And I understood <laughs> that uh, from experience that there are whole new levels of tribulation I knew nothing about. Whole new levels of alienation from the culture around you. And I never really knew what it was, even though I, and I thought I did, because I'd been raised as an English kid in the middle of an Irish Roman Catholic neighborhood. Uh, I was kind of a universal hate symbol uh, throughout my childhood, but I never really understood what alienation from a culture meant until I became a Christian living and working in the midst of unbelievers and how different it was. Well, they're going to be moved, but why are they willing to do that? Because the same God who redeemed them, the same God who's been making plans for them, has said this has to happen and it will go well because I'm not going to leave you, I'm not going to forget you. They understand that, but their life changes dramatically. So too, if you become a Christian, your life will change dramatically. But not just your life on this side of eternity, your life forever changes dramatically. Your goals, your desire, your will, and ultimately where you will spend eternity, all of that changes forever. So the carts are sent. Joseph again tells them, you know, he tells them not to beat themselves up or think they were unworthy of what is happening. See that you do not become troubled along the way. Now is a time of rejoicing. Be happy. Don't worry about things. Just get your stuff and, and come back. And the brothers then, they go back to Canaan and they tell their, their father the good news about Joseph. Um, it is a good thing that God is in charge of this. And as a result, Joseph's heart doesn't literally, or rather Jacob's heart doesn't literally stop at the moment that he's told his, his son is alive. Um, unfortunately, because he had been dealing with the brothers for so very long, he doesn't believe them. Isn't that sad? The first thing that, uh, the first way he responds to this good news is, I don't believe it. And then they're like, all right, you don't believe us, believe your eyes. And he, they take them out and they show them the carts, these royal carts from, from Egypt. And they understand, he understands at this point, his son is alive, he's been exalted in Egypt. He can't deny the evidence of his own eyes. And the evacuation convoy then picks him up and they begin their way back to Egypt. Notice this, all of his expectations change in that moment. What had Jacob expected? Jacob had expected to go down to the grave bereaved of his favorite son. He worried also that he was going to go down to the grave bereaved of his second favorite son. And instead he finds that everything is better than he could have ever expected. It was simply impossible. This was so far beyond his expectations, what was actually going on. It was abundantly above anything that he could think or consider. So here's an application. It is wrong, and I need to tell you this, and subjectively we, we sometimes forget it because we don't view ourselves as we ought to. We don't have a God's eye perspective on our lives, but... It is so often the case, and it is amazing, it amazes me to this day, it is amazing how wrong God's people can be about their true situation. How different, or the great difference between what they believe is going on and what is actually going on. Especially if all they do is look at the circumstances of their life all day long. Remember this, just a, a few chapters ago, before the brothers had returned to Egypt, Jacob had said the following words. 
he said, and Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. And yet, in point of fact, everything was for Jacob. The Lord was working for him. What was the problem? The problem was his perception. The problem was ultimately his lack of faith. He didn't believe that any of these things could ultimately work for their good. Romans 8.28 tells us something. We need to repeat this to ourselves, I think, daily. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. All things means all things. Everything that's going on. And you will find that most of the time you're not actually getting it right about where you are, what your circumstances are, and so on. I have seen people who everybody would say, you know, or 99, let's face it, 99% of the world's inhabitants would say, what have you got to worry about? I, I just don't see it. I remember, I used this example before, I apologize. We had an Indian missionary come. He deals with the, uh, the untouchables, uh, the people who live, uh, uh, particularly the, uh, the people who live in the jungles in the northeast of India. Uh, they are incredibly low on the social totem pole in India. Uh, they received very little government assistance. Uh, the big news that had happened in his, the, the great leaps forward for his people in a circumstances kind of way was they had finally gotten a pump so that the women didn't have to go and bring infected water uh, from the river, the same river that they washed their clothes in, that they went to the bathroom in, that uh, dead bodies would float down and things like that. They could now pump in the middle of the village. So in the mornings they could go out and do that instead of having to go all the way to the river. The second thing was their church had finally gotten a corrugated tin roof. That was it. Their air conditioning is the fact that there are big holes in the cinder blocks of their roof. And the, you know, the air goes right the way through and everything else as well. That's his life. And he came and he visited with us. And he visited a, a supermarket. And his response was, how do you preach the gospel out here? <laughs> and, you know, everybody's living in heaven already. You know? That was his perspective. And yet at that moment in time, I could have pointed him to scores of people who would say, this is the worst life I've ever, I just, uh, nothing works until everything's against me. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, I don't see you having to bring water to you. I'm sorry, I'll stop doing the Indian accent. It's awful. Um, you know, you don't have to bring water from, from a river. You don't have to worry that you're going to run out of food, that there'll be no, there's no stores to buy it from. You don't have to worry that your children is going to get, uh, your children are going to get scrubbed typhus suddenly and, and die overnight. You don't have to worry that the military is going to descend upon you. Well, let's actually move that one aside. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to worry about thousands of things that, that they could worry about, but the amazing thing is they don't. We spend all of our time worrying about the circumstances that we're in and fearing that they're not absolutely perfect and we're not in heaven already. Well, here's the thing. You're not in heaven already. I can preach the gospel because people do realize that even in this richest of all nations, death, for instance, is approaching for all of us and that this is not perfect. There is still cancer. There are still car accidents. There is still lousy food at the 7-Eleven, things like that. We still have not reached our eternal home, all of us. So it is still possible to reach heaven. And yet, most of us, we estimate 
our situation by our subjective feelings towards our circumstances instead of looking at the mountain of benefits that we have and the fact that God's redemptive plan is still working and you're not the only feature in his redemptive plan that's out of whack. You're not the one cog in the machine that's in the wrong place that isn't turning correctly. Believe it or not, everything that happens in your life, the ups, the downs, they have to work the way that they do. And we will look back and say, he has done all things well. And we will understand, I had to be brought through that particular crucible. I had to go through that valley before I was ready to stand on the mountain. I am so thankful, and I mean this sincerely, I am so thankful that I did not immediately get a giant church after doing the, the church plant here would have ruined me, absolutely, and I would have ruined it as a result. It would have been terrible. God knew better. So he brought me through this experience and so on. And the humbling, I, you know, you never expect or understand or appreciate chastening, but it's sometimes necessary. The brothers understood it. Now, I could give you so many examples from the New Testament where this principle bears out. I'm only going to refer to two. The first is, you remember the disciples, the two disciples who were walking to Emmaus. At least I hope you do. If you don't, go home and read Luke 24. We don't have time to read it, and it's full today. But they were traveling to Emmaus, and they were talking about the things that had happened. They had been through the crucifixion. They had not expected Jesus to die. They had hoped, like so many others, that he would come into Jerusalem, and he would take his place as the Messiah and rule there, great day its greater son, literally in a political sense. Instead, he had been scourged, beaten, brutalized, then sent to the cross, and then buried in a tomb. And so they're met by this stranger who asks them, what kind of conversation is that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? So they said to them, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. And they tell them about the story that they told. And then he says, are you so slow to understand that you didn't realize from the prophets that all these things were going to happen? Didn't you read Isaiah 53? Come on, guys. And all of the prophecies about how God would do these things. God himself, Jesus, of course, is the one who's walking with them, has to tell them it had to be this way. Don't you understand? In order for your redemption to occur, all of these things had to happen. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. And let me tell you this. If you're following after Jesus, and I hope you are, you have to suffer these things before you can enter into glory. The Puritans knew this. We need to take it to heart as well. It's preached by every great evangelist who truly knew the Lord. Wesley, Spurgeon, Rowland Ward, Martin Lloyd-Jones. No cross, no crown. You want the crown of glory, you must bear the cross this side of glory. But your time of probation is very short. And the Lord will bless you along the way. You're never left. You are never without his resources. He is always with you. And he always provides for his children. And no matter what's happening to you, you have his assurances that it'll work well. Second example from Acts chapter 2. 
There Peter is preaching, you remember. He's preaching to a mob in many cases that had, had been shouting just a little while ago, crucify, crucify, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Now they're listening to him. And the words that he says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the, predeter by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It was God's determined purpose that he should be crucified. What you did was evil. What you did was, in fact, the greatest evil that's ever been done, but it had to happen if you were to be redeemed. And then, of course, Peter ends by telling them to repent and be baptized, all of you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. You who all also, just as much as the men he was talking to, we all had a hand in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It was our sins that sent him to the cross. That's our contribution to our salvation, incidentally. Do you ever want to know what did you contribute to your salvation? Sin. You're the sinner who the, the song speaks of, the wretch who John Newton refers to, that saved a wretch like me or like you. That's what we contribute to our salvation. But God loved us so much that he was willing to take our sin and to use it for good, to overrule it. Understand that every day of your life, you are within the history of redemption that's been unfolding since Genesis. You're not the first person whom God has forgotten. You are not the first mistake in his plan. What's happening to you, therefore, is what had to happen to you. Please understand that. And therefore, don't fight against the whole process of redemption. Do his will. Bow the knee. Don't be like the, the Stoics used to give the example of the dog behind the ox cart. Uh, and they said, you know, the dog that's, that's tied to the ox cart, if it digs its feet in and it, it rebels against fate, uh, all it's going to do is end up having its, its paws dragged off and so on. It's not a great example. Uh, we're not determinists ourselves, but I think Christians can sometimes do that when it comes to the will of God as well. We can try to resist, and it does us no good. Bow the knee. Kiss the sun. Believe and understand that God hasn't forgotten you. He loved you so much that he was willing to send his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, the only innocent man who ever lived into this world to die for your sins. There is no greater testament of love. Take that to heart and know that you have not been forgotten. Let's go before the Lord. Gracious God, I do pray now, Lord, that you would help us to remember that just as much as Joseph was part of redemptive history, we are as well and that your plans are still unfolding in our lives. Help us, therefore, not to resist your will, but to do your will. Help us to bow the knee, kiss the sun, and to rejoice that we have been found worthy to partake of so great a salvation, far greater than we could ever, ever have gained ourselves. Lord, we love you, but not enough. Help us to love you more. Help us to be content with our situation. Help us to rejoice in the blessings that we have. Help us to fix our eyes day by day on the mountain of blessings that we have in Jesus not allow our vision to be taken off so that we look at the tiny molehill of blessings, that, uh, blessing, or rather curses, that stand against us. Oh Lord, help us to be truly content with what uh, Elder King has called our competent portion. 